Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Our mission is to introduce you to books and movies and series that may stir your soul and lift your spirit. Our guest coming up is author and Broadway manager Tom Santopietro. But first, what have you found this week, Fritz? Well, and we have the perfect guest for this today, for our spirits to be lifted and for positivity. I needed some heroes. You know, we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week. I just, I, I need to find uh, the good core of humanity. So I started a book about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, there have been a zillion books about Abraham Lincoln, but this is by Ron White. And USA Today said, if you read one book about Lincoln, make it A. Lincoln. It's called A. Lincoln because that's how he signed his name. Published in 2010, named as one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Christian Science Monitor, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Lincoln, as you know, is one of the hardest characters in history to define. He's very complex, but everybody agrees that he's a man of integrity, a man of authenticity. He has a strong moral compass. God bless him. And that's why I wanted to read the book. I wanted to know that there were people like that sometime in history. The author has fairly newly discovered letters and photos that uh, lead him on this path. It's really easy to read. It's not scholarly. It's a book about Lincoln's personal and political and moral evolution. I'm not finished the book yet, but man, I'm sure. Do I love not it. give away the ending. I, <laughs> I won't. That's it, Weez. All right, I'm going to read that. That sounds amazing. I love it. And we, I guess this week we have both been consuming the Comey Rule. And it's based on this, his book, A Higher Loyalty, the James Comey book. So this is the first Trump era, Trump regime movie. And I've been playing this parlor game where it's been cathartic to cast the movie, to imagine that this nightmare is over and that we're casting the movie. And the game goes as follows. You kind of go, OK, John Goodman is Bill Barr. <laughs> he could maybe even play Trump in another version. Hashtag range. Uh, and then you get then you go further and further, you know, off the path. You go uh, Trump, Chris Farley, because the person doesn't have to be alive. This is a parlor game. You go, um, let's see, Pence, a Confederate statue. And <laughs> you go Ivanka, a golden retriever. <laughs> I recommend the game. It's healing. So in this movie, can you even stand the casting? I mean, Holly Hunter Flipping Holly Hunter as as Sally Yates, like yeah, look, it's look, just honest to God, they look like twins. It it's was mind so blowing. much fun. And the guy that played uh, McCabe, it looks identical to the yeah. guy. And there were some really interesting characters. The Rod Rosenstein character is like the devil lurking in the shadows. <laughs> wow, they made him look bad, didn't they? He was like a Shakespearean like darkness. Lisa Page, wow. She was like a woman that I would marry and then regret it 10 minutes later. Just a, a, a bad human being. Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, that whole dynamic played out. And I was worried about Brendan Gleeson because I'd seen the, the promos and I thought, oh, this is going to be a cartoon. And, you know, we have Alec Baldwin and Saturday Night Live. He was really, really good. And his acting was spectacular. And, and a sentence into his performance, you understood that this was... This was not a cartoon. This was the real deal. But you don't get to eat furniture. You're supposed to eat furniture. I mean, I pay, I just picture <laughs> actors sitting and watching this tableau play itself out and and cast themselves in certain roles because this this is the first movie. It was really important to Jeff Daniels to get this movie out before the election because he thought that it was important for this version of truth to be out there when all yeah, you have right Yeah, he went to right the wall about it, too. He said, if you don't yeah. put this out before the election, I'm bailing. I'm not doing the PR for this movie. Right, because Trump is the president. He has he has the podium. He has the, the, the platform to say whatever he wants in response to everything that's been happening. So there's, we're just full of so much disinformation that it's just interesting to sit there for several hours and just watch the story unfold. And I have, I have read Comey's book. It's an interesting dynamic between himself and his wife who just had enormous problems with the decisions that he was making in yeah. real time. Fascinating stuff. And his daughter was the Greek chorus of, you're making a big mistake, Dad. Just just absolutely 
stellar, so well done. I'll tell you, uh, I uh, first of all, I love the director. You know, Billy Ray did Captain Phillips, which was spectacular. The Richard Jewell movie, and I was involved in that because I was at the Atlanta Olympics when the bomb went off. Fifteen. Oh, you have to tell your true story about I, how I you will. were the only tape that you ever saw on NBC that they rolled over and over and over again of things exploding was mm-hmm. tape that Fritz had run. Go ahead. Well, the, uh, the, you know, back in the old days when network television had a lot of money, uh, they sent the entire news team to the Olympics, you know, a hundred of us. And we went to Seoul, Korea, and then we went to the Atlanta Olympics. And the only area where you could broadcast was Centennial Park. And in order to sort of control the media circumstances, they had six fiber optic drops. These are places where cameramen could plug in and broadcast from six various locations around Centennial Park. And on this particular night, I was plugged into one down near the stage. They had all this great live entertainment uh, throughout the evening, and everybody could come and have a good time. And so I had just finished my 11 o'clock newscast back to the West Coast. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, Atlanta time. And I had just finished my broadcast at that location, walked back to our little Quonset hut underneath the performance stage, which was no more than 100 feet from the bomb site. And all of a sudden, boom, the guy had put the backpack with a nail bomb underneath the bench right there and literally... 10 feet from where I had done the weather, not 10 minutes before this bomb exploded. And it was unbelievable. And so they did a lockdown. The only camera person with working videotape equipment after they did the lockdown was the person who had done my weather forecast. And so he shot the video of the explosion site, the wounded, all of the chaos, And they weren't letting anybody in and out of the park because of the lockdown. So he handed me the videotape and I had to jog two miles to the broadcast headquarters where this stuff would get playback. And we had the only tape. And then suddenly all night we're doing interviews with German television, Italian television, Portuguese television, because we had the only videotape. It was a horrifying experience. But here's the third act. I was scared to death because we didn't know if this was the start of maybe a rash of terrorist bombings, if this was just one of many that were to come. And the next day, nobody was afraid or angry. Everybody had gone back to normal circumstances. And I said to these families, these were all the families of people who had brought Olympians to compete. And I said, are you people not upset? We had a bomb go off here last night. And said, in our country, this stuff happens every day. And second of all, you don't understand. You're a first world country. We're a third world country. We had to sell our home to be able to afford to bring our athlete to compete in these games. They're going to have to kill us for us not to have a good time. And it was a great eye-opening experience. I thought, wow, I, I, am, I am humbled by having met you. And then I went and had a great time like nothing ever happened. It was an unbelievable experience. Wow. And they're just now telling the story of Richard Jewell, which is just a it was tragic. A it was great. And NBC got in trouble. Brokaw was sued for having misrepresented that he was guilty. And the Atlanta Constitution was sued for having said he was guilty and he wasn't guilty. So it was a really interesting time. Anyway, this director is fantastic. I will say one final thought because I don't want to keep Tom waiting anymore. He has such great stuff to talk about that will make us feel better about humanity. Um this, this, the second night of Comey Rules, Weezy, see if you agree with this, was just a great duel between these two guys. One who was driven by, yeah, a little ego involved. You know, he's a very controversial figure, Comey, but one driven by his desire to work for his country and the other guy a completely different motivation. And it was just a great a parrying of these two completely different personalities. And I thought it was really well done. So what's interesting to me about that dynamic is that the people who are purely self-motivated, that these narcissists, or however you want to define him, they imagine that everyone in the world is similarly driven. They don't mm-hmm. understand altruism because they've never felt any. So they can only imagine that everyone else is a shark who swims and eats. Therefore, yeah. you have to swim faster and eat more. So Trump's not able to imagine what Comey is actually thinking and feeling, but Comey, having 
in, investigated, interrogated, and uh, prosecuted mobsters, he knows exactly what he's looking at. He knows exactly who this guy is. So it's a it's a mismatch, except for the fact that Trump is in the seat of power and he can yeah. fire him, and he does. I thought it was really well done. I, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the reviews sort of play out in in categorizing people as to what they thought about Comey before the thing was ever shot. You know, some people thought he did a great disservice to the country and blew it for Hillary. There were other people, I thought this was beautifully described in the first night of the peace toward the end. He was in a hell of a conundrum here. I mean, he had released this information and now new information came out. If he doesn't release it and they sort of describe the whole thing, then if anything comes out later, it turns out that we withheld information. It was an awful, it was a lose-lose position for him to be in, whether or not you agree with him or not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I think that in his book, he said there may have been something more that we had been looking for. He doesn't describe it as the BlackBerry contents. In the movie, they describe it as the BlackBerry contents, but they still scrubbed through it. They found nothing. And there's just so many different things that, you know, what could go wrong and what could, what, where a person could make, could turn right when they turned left that result in Trump ascending mm -hmm. to power. So it's, it's chilling to watch, but I, I do think it's important that people understand exactly what's going on. It was really well done. Great that, acting and well written and everything. So now I'd like to uh, introduce our guest. I'm excited. I'm excited to do it. Please welcome Tom Santo Pietro. Hey, Tom. Thank you for your patience. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having um, me on. Tom Santo Pietro is the author of seven books Why to Kill a Mockingbird Matters, Barbara Cook, Then and Now, The Best Selling, The Sound of Music, The Godfather Effect, Changing Hollywood, America and Me, Sinatra in Hollywood, Considering Doris Day, New York Times Sunday Book Review, Editor's Choice, and The Importance of Being Barbara, a frequent media commentator and interviewer. He lectures on classic films and over the past 30 years has managed more than two dozen Broadway shows. So give us a little bit of your history, Tom. How did you launch into your career? Well, when uh, let me see the uh, Reader's Digest version would be <laughs> that um, <laughs> I, I went to law school, graduated from law school and said, I am not doing this. <laughs> I was so uninterested in it. So I decided I was going to come to New York and I wanted to work on Broadway shows. And I did that and continue to do that. But uh, after I had been doing it full time for about 20 years, I thought to myself, I was on the business side. I was managing these shows and I thought I want to do something more creative. And I thought I'm going to write a book. And that's how the writing started. And I didn't tell anybody I was writing a book because, number one, I didn't know I, if I would finish it. And number two, what if it was really bad? <laughs> and so I finished the book and I didn't know what to do. So I sent it to my oldest friend in the world. And it just still makes me laugh. He read it. And two days later, he called me and he said in just this tone, it's good. <laughs> like even a moron like you can write a book <laughs> so that's how it started but it's scary when a friend asks you a friend that you really love asks you to read a book because it's it's you that takes a lot of time and then so it's not just like can you listen to my song oh that'll take about three minutes okay <laughs> um and it, you read a book or a screenplay and you're like what uh you know yeah yeah it's, so thanks and uh, I just figured that he I knew him well enough that he was going to be honest with me. And, you know, if if he felt it was terrible, he would say it in a nice way. But he, he liked it. And that and then I, I was very fortunate. I got it to somebody. I just happened to hit it at the right time. Um, uh, I completely admit my luck. And uh, he, uh, this editor read the book. And uh, he said, you know what? My first book was the one about Barbara Streisand. And he said, you know what, Tom? I don't even like Barbara Streisand, <laughs> but I like the book, so I'll buy it. <laughs> so that, I, I, again, my good fortune. Wheezy, if you'll just permit me to ask him yeah. a question before you, uh, because I'm so interested with somebody with your background and expertise. What do you see as the future for Broadway? What a horrible time it is right now. Broadway is so expensive. Will they recover to anything close to what they were pre-pandemic when this is all over? Uh, uh, that is a great question. It is the question, of course, that all of us in the industry are grappling with and the 
millions of tourists who come to Broadway? And I think the short answer is Broadway will come back, but I think it is going to take much more time than anybody realizes. I, I think it's going to have, we're going to have to have a, an effective vaccine that is widely available that people have gotten and we have to put all new safety protocols in place at the theater. So I, I, if I had to guess, I would say a minimum of another year, but it oh, could yeah. be longer. And for people to be comfortable enough to invest large quantities of money in these projects. Yeah, absolutely. Because the big thing and the one thing that is known now is you cannot... Um, run a Broadway show with the audience being socially distanced. It doesn't make economic sense because you can't sell every third seat. Every show, including Hamilton, would lose a fortune every week. Mm -hmm. And you wow. can't have people on stage singing. I don't think a lot of people uh, understand how small Broadway theaters are. They're small. They're small. They're, the, I would say if you averaged all the Broadway theaters together, you would probably come up with a seating capacity of 1,300. And so compare 1,300 to the arenas that hold 20,000 or stadiums with 50,000. Right. And when you're playing sports, you're outdoors and you're, you're running. When you're, on, when you're on Broadway, you're on a stage and you're singing. And if you sit close enough, you've seen people spit. It's, that's the spitting <laughs> is part of the fun of sitting close. Like, I got to see them spit. <laughs> it's I a badge of honor. I think that's true. I, I do. I re, I'm an optimist and I think we absolutely will come back. It's just going to take some time. Okay. Let's talk um, about the Von Trapps, Wheezy. From your, from your lips. Okay. Uh, so here's my backstory, Tom. So I'm on a cruise of the Danube, mm -hmm. as one would be. <laughs> and I'm with my husband and our cousin, Ricky. And Ricky is obsessed with Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music. So as we get closer and closer to Salzburg, he's talking more and more about all of the factoids in his head, which include the morsels that he has gleaned from your book. And I said to my husband, so we're going to Salzburg. We're going to see every, you know, we're going to see everything that was in The Sound of Music. And my husband says, I, I've never seen that movie. And I, I stop, I hold up traffic on the river cruise. I, I, I just stare at him like, who am I married to? I don't, this is disqualifying. So it's a river cruise. It's very tiny. There's one movie on a loop on the TV in the rooms, right? And you can guess what that movie <laughs> is. So, and you can't pause. You can't go to the bathroom. It just keeps playing. So I said, Ronnie, sit down. You're going to be, you can't go to Salzburg without having seen this movie. You have to sit and watch the movie. So he does. So we get to Salzburg. It's 120 degrees. And we are running, me and Ricky are running that poor man all over Salzburg from one thing to another. It was exhilarating because Ricky keeps talking about everything that he knows from your book. And we actually found the church where they got married in the film and found all these things. And and um, I'm filming. I made a little YouTube video, which I, I will share with you later. And... Uh, we're, Ricky's reenacting scenes. He's doing dances. He's hopping up steps. He's right. going like this. And uh, it was triumphant. And we get right back to the boat. And now I've heard enough from him that I'm downloading your book and spent the rest of the river cruise reading your book, which is titled, and I don't know if this is record breaking, but the this title is hefty. It is called The Sound of Music Story, colon, How a Beguiling Young Novice, a Handsome Austrian Captain, and Ten Singing Von Trapp Children inspired the most beloved film of all time. And the book is even longer than the title. So <laughs> I think people should get it. There's so much wonderful stuff in this book. And the movie is, is so beloved. And it, it never skips a generation. It just continues to be embraced. And I want to know from you, Tom, why do you think that is? Uh, well, that's a very good question, because it's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Uh, I really want to I'm fascinated by uh, uh, let's call them cultural events, whether it's a book or, or a film that people don't just like but they love and obsess over and have to return to over and over and over again. So it's really why I wrote about The Sound of Music and it's why I wrote about The Godfather because that's what they, they share. And I think the reason why people uh, uh, 
love it so much and go back to it over and over. Uh, the first reason is because it's a beautifully made film with the golden age Hollywood craftsmen at near the end of their career, still all at the top of their games. So that is a, is a big reason. I think the second reason why is because at heart, The Sound of Music is about family and that is universal. And, and that plays into the third reason, which is The Sound of Music gives us hope. And in this unbelievably difficult world we live in, we all want that hope. And I think you combine those factors with this extraordinarily beautiful score. I think more hit songs than any score ever written for any Broadway show. And, and a star made for the role at the top of her game. And you, you sort of put those all together and it gets to you so emotionally. And that's why I think people love it so much. I think there's another factor too, and it, it's about standing up for something. It's mm -hmm. about standing up for your country and your, your beliefs and your integrity. And that they're, you know, spoiler alert, but that you're willing to climb, climb and cross over a mountain range uh, to hold on to the beliefs that, you, that you've held dear uh, throughout your life and that you, you, to be the person that you want to be for your family and for, and for your country. And, and so I think that there's that element as, as well. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things I always, you know, a, a criticism of The Sound of Music is that, you know, people say it's saccharine and that's not really the way it happened. But I always say to people, the building blocks of, of the film are true. You know, Maria was a governess who did marry the captain, etc. But my point is, what I really think people should know is that the Von Trapps are worthy of admiration because in real life, they defied Hitler no fewer than three times. Now, it's one thing for us to be saying this in the year 2020 in our comfortable existence, but they could have been killed for it. And, and so I think, you know, the first time was they were, and I use air quotes, in, invited to sing for Hitler on his birthday, and they said no. The next time, the oldest Von Trapp was not um, Liesel, 16 going on 17, but it was a son, a doctor. And he was uh, offered a position at a hospital in Austria. And he said, no, you're only offering me that position because you're not allowing Jewish physicians to practice. Yes, it took guts. And the third, re the third way they defied Hitler, of course, was uh, the captain's refusal to serve in the Navy. So that, that's the part that's depicted in the film. So I say, whatever liberties Hollywood takes, because of course they have to, it's not a documentary. These are people that are worthy of our admiration. Uh, Tom, talk us through the Von Trapp story in reality and how it made it to uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. Well, the, um, it, you know, it started with Maria Von Trapp wrote a book. And the book was uh, made into two German language films. And uh, one day, a man, a man named Vincent Donahue was watching uh, these films and he, said, he thought to himself, hmm, this would make a nice story for Mary Martin to play on Broadway. <laughs> but they thought it was only going to be a play. And Mary and her husband, who was a producer, thought, well, let's, you know what, we should have one folk song added to it because the Von Trapps sang. And so they went to uh, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, of course, Mary had starred in South Pacific for them, and said, would you write one song? And Rogers and Hammerstein said, if you'll wait a year while we finish Flower Drum Song, we'll write an entire score for you. And that's really how it started. Wow. So when we're talking about history and when we're talking about heritage, I think I read this in your book, but correct me if I'm wrong. I can't remember whether or not I read this in your book or I learned this when I was in Salzburg. The Sound of Music plays all over the world. It does not screen in Austria, possibly because this is a country that has not addressed their past in a way that Germany has. What are your thoughts? Um I would say that was true until about 10 years ago. 
Okay. And and one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, the sound of music was, as you know, a worldwide success everywhere it was shown, with the exception of Germany and Austria. And clearly they were still grappling with their history because the sound of music came out in 65. So the war was only 20 years in the past and they did not want to know about the sound of music. And they, you know, felt it was a Hollywood version of their culture. But as time passed, they began to come to terms with that heritage and they, um, there have now been live stage productions in Austria. And, uh, and of course, now it's a centerpiece of Austrian tourism, which you know about because you experienced it yourself. And so it, it has, in a way, come full circle. And uh, so the fact that it was a box office flop only in two places, Germany and Austria, uh, has been... Uh, that is really in the past. Uh, you know, that's what time does, of course. And uh, the last thing I would say on that, which is just so interesting to me, is that when it was first shown in Germany in 1965, uh, one of the German exhibitors took it upon himself to cut the film, and he ended the film after the marriage. Wow. My goodness. Because he did not want anything about the Nazis shown. And Robert Wise, the director, found out about this and understandably went ballistic and the, you know, the original film was uh, restored. Wow. Well, this was a career-defining role for Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer as the captain, but there were others considered before the casting went down. Who else was being considered for the roles? Oh, yeah, that's a, a great question. And uh, that's something I write about in the book, because I think it's so much fun. We all like to know those Hollywood backstories. And I think um, for the captain, uh, Sean Connery was considered and the young Sean Connery would have been good in that role, I think. Mm -hmm. The uh, actor that always makes me scratch my head in that, you know, sometimes Hollywood just is so nuts. Um, uh, they were considering Bing Crosby. And I just think Yikes. that is such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but these are the same geniuses that thought that Michael Corleone in The Godfather should be played by Robert Redford. So, <laughs> right. Um, so, and then uh, for the role of Maria, uh, at one point, they it's interesting, they mentioned the name Grace Kelly. But, you know, Grace Kelly was otherwise occupied in Monaco. Wow. <laughs> and and the, the person who was seriously considered uh, was Doris Day because she was a fantastic singer and she could really act. And she was a huge box office. She was the biggest star in the world. But she was smart enough. She said her quote was, she said, I'm so all American. Nobody's going to believe me as an Austrian nun. <laughs> <laughs> and she of course was absolutely right and and then uh the great thing with julie is you know that nobody mary poppins had not been released so every, nobody knew if she was going to work on film because you know ethel merman and mary martin were fantastic on broadway but never became film stars mm -hmm. and and so uh Robert Wise uh, went, to, he called up Walt Disney and said, can I, can I see some of the footage of Mary Poppins? Can I see 20 minutes? And he, they went over and Walt Disney said, sure. And after literally five minutes, Robert Wise turned to his associate and he said, let's go sign her now before somebody else does. Yeah, wow. she just jumps off the screen, doesn't she? Was that before or after West Side Story? Because he did that too, right? Yeah, this is um, uh, uh, four years after West Side Story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fritz, why don't we break for commercial now and then we'll come okay. back with some more questions for Tom. I, I can't wait. All right. Winning season returns to my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. I like those odds. Winning season means survivor and super contests and squares. At my bookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now, make your first deposit to get a dollar for dollar match all the way up to a thousand bucks, and grab yourself a free entry into the famed My Bookie Super Contest. 
To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at $100,000 guaranteed in cash prizes. Best part is my bookie has thousands of bets to choose from, the full NFL slate, and the NBA playoffs. From live betting to championship futures, whatever you need, every play you want to make is waiting at my bookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Use the promo code THINGS, T-H-I-N-G-S, THINGS, and double your first deposit right now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. We've Okay, Tom, let's talk about the intersection of the film's release with the turbulent 1960s. Mm. Well, it, yeah, I think that's another reason why it became a... Uh, uh, such a phenomenon because the film was released in March of 65 and that, you know, th that was really the start of the counterculture because the early sixties were really a, a, a continuation of the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So you, the film came out and what happened is that you, you see a huge critical divide. The industry papers like variety and Hollywood reporter love it. The city, smaller cities in the country and the small towns love the film and rave about it. The big city critics hate it. And it became, and this is something I wanted to discuss at length, it became a like a litmus test for people, you know, the Pauline Kales and Judith Chris of the world. They had to go out of their way to denigrate the sound of music and to show that they understood the new culture that was happening. Ah. And so it, it's a fascinating thing because, and you know, the New York times gave it a horrible, horrible review. Yeah. And then you flash forward to the time of the film's 50th anniversary and the New York times runs a reassessment of the film, which is completely different. That's so, so interesting how, yeah. how the time that, in which we exist informs our opinion. We're so concerned about what others think of us that how many of our opinions are actually genuine? It begs that, that question, doesn't it? It, it? That is a really, really good point. And I think, you know, I, I sort of uh, focused on there. There was a cover story at the time uh, in Esquire magazine that was talking about the new culture. And they were saying what they considered hip and good, and what in their terms was hopelessly old fashioned and should be 86. It was The Sound of Music, Gene Kelly, John Wayne. And you see now you go forward 50 years and everybody's still watching The Sound of Music, John Wayne and Gene Kelly. Yes. So it's, it's fascinating how the currents, you know, as you said, we're so concerned what people think of us. and. So that, that's why I like really examining these, these films. Lots of those stories in Hollywood. I, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life is the same thing. Tepid reviews, no box office, and then legendary after 25 or 30 years. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, so these films that in one way or another sort of tap into the zeitgeist, that, that's a, to me a really interesting uh, phenomenon to, to examine. And so... I hope the book, I think the book is a fun read. That's what readers have told me. But I also wanted to put a little bit of, you know, serious analysis in it to ground, ground it. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk for a little bit and help people understand where where the, the story and real life uh, diverge? Because I think people are, are interested in the actual Von Trapps and who they were and wh uh, what became of them. Sure. Um, well, there were... Uh, 10 Von Trapp children, not seven. And uh, the, you know, the, the differences are small and funny, like the fact that the captain's real life marriage proposal to Maria happened when she was cleaning a chandelier. And he said, <laughs> well, I guess we should get married. So, you what know. do you mean? There was no gazebo involved? <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, I've talked about the fact that, you know, the family defied Hitler three times. Uh, the oldest child, Liesel, was, there was no Liesel. 
Uh, so they changed the birth order and the number of children for dramatic purposes, because uh, as I said, it's not a documentary. I think a big, big difference is how the family escaped, because it wasn't climbing over the hills. Uh, Maria von Trapp herself said, according to the geography of this movie, we would have climbed into Hitler's backyard near Berchtesgaden. And Robert Wise, as the director said, Hollywood makes its own geography. So, <laughs> uh, but what they really did, and this to me is just fascinating. Uh, you remember in the film that the uh, butler, we'll call him the butler, you know, turns out to be a Nazi. And he, and well, in real life he was but he loved the Von Trapps. And he said to the captain and Maria, as he's wearing his swastika armband, I have to tell you, they're going to shut the borders. You need to leave immediately. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was each of the Von Trapps took, packed one bag and they took the train to Italy as if they were going on a vacation. And that is how they escaped. They left everything behind. So when the Von Trapps arrived in the United States, they literally, instead of being aristocratic with money, they were completely penniless. That wow. that's really interesting to me. You know, yeah. were they surprised at the success of this whole thing as they watched it blossom all around them, all around the world? Yes, they they did not. I mean, they knew the Broadway show was such a big hit. And, and also had had the same critical divide as the as the film. Uh, but the film, of course, made them worldwide phenomenons. And I think uh, I, I had a great interview with Johannes von Trapp, who was the, the youngest. He's now, I think, 80. Uh, he's the one child born here in the States. Um, and I think they have, it was hard for them at first because there they are on screen as literally the most ideal family in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's impossible for we flesh and blood humans to live mm -hmm. up to. So I think that was difficult, but I think they have really come to terms with it and they very much appreciate what the film has done for their family and extending the family's legacy, both musically and the uh, beautiful Von Trapp Lodge in Vermont. So I think they, they have come to embrace it in a way that at first was difficult for them. Yeah, it's partly fictional. They, they love what it represents. As you said, it represents hope. And it, what, a it, what a lovely legacy to leave. It, it's the best. It's what we all want. And uh, so and uh, uh, Johannes talked about the fact of um, it was one of the five films Chairman Mao allowed to be shown in China. There were only five films he said wow. shown. And it was so beloved there. And remember, China was not open. This we're going back decades, the, the way it quite is now. But he, he was over there for a possible business opportunity. And he said there, the Chinese non-English speaking people, they just wanted to hear him sing Edelweiss. And so uh, that, that that's so interesting. And not only that, but it represents a family having the guts to go against the state. It's surprising they would allow that to happen. Right. And of course, that's why the Chinese people loved the film so much. So that gives it another mm -hmm. level on which you're, you're absolutely right with that comment. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rebelling against authoritarianism and it's the love of family and uh I think uh, the one other story, just in terms of other countries that I would want to share with you is, um, well, it's not a country, but during the Reagan presidency, uh, we hosted the G7 Economic Summit once. It was in Virginia. And so, as we all know, Ronald Reagan, um, a fantastic communicator, could be really shaky on the facts. And so they, uh, James Baker, uh, oversaw the preparation of an entire briefing book for the president that really laid it out. And he gave it to the president to study. This is absolutely true. This is not an apocryphal story. And uh, he gave it to the president uh, to uh, read. And he went into the president's room the next day. And he looked at the briefing book. And he said, Mr. President, 
you haven't opened that book. It's in the exact same place it was last night. And President Reagan said, how could I have read that book? The Sound of Music was on television last night. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Now, depending on your political persuasion, you think find that charming or horrifying. (laughs) No, no, no. But that is the power of the film, is my point of that anecdote. That was recorded several places. Let's talk about how the film has impacted the lives of the actors, especially possibly the young people. I I know that Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer have full control over their careers as adults, even though it can be difficult to uh, recover, if you will, from an iconic role. Uh, But Christopher Plummer seems to have had like about a billion and a half parts since then. And Julie Andrews, of course. But what about what about the children? How have they done? Uh, they, they have. I do have a kind of roundup of all the kids and what's been happening in the years since in the book mm-hmm. that I think people would be interested in. Yeah. Um, we've uh, sadly two of the seven have passed away, um, and I think um, Nicholas Hammond, who played the older of the boys, has had the most. Uh, sustained show business career uh a lot of them did not make a point of pursuing it Mm -hmm. and uh they the kids all really loved making the film and they love the legacy it has given them and uh because they are a part of our culture they they literally are Christopher Plummer is the one who's kind of had a love-hate relationship with the film. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he's he's a crusty guy anyway, so a brilliant actor. But so, uh, you know, it's a, it's fascinating to see how those kids reacted uh, sort of versus how the Von Trapps themselves reacted. Yeah, that is, in, that, that is interesting because the kids knew that they were auditioning for a role. They did not know it would become an, this kind of... Uh, a, the role that is remembered for generations, the Von Trapps themselves that, you know, they must go uh, apply for a credit card and say their name. And there's now a conversation about their name. Every, <laughs> I, you know, you're a Von Trapp for life. This is this is kind of your legacy. Uh, but I have a surprise guest for you, Tom. My cousin Rick is is on the call. Ricky, are you there? I am there. Oh, I am there. awesome. I very much enjoyed your book. It was it was fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Rick, do you have a question for Tom? I do. I do have a question, and I was trying to think of something original that hasn't been asked and answered that wasn't part of Julie Andrews' memoirs, talks, and so forth. And I want to go back to the origins, which is, why was Maria a problem? In other words, a whole song was written about how do you solve a problem like Maria? And I just wondered historically, when people were sent to nunneries, um, you know, it was always for a reason. I go back to medieval times, Renaissance times, and I remember there's a classic line in Hamlet where Ophelia is coming on to him, and he said to Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery. A nunnery was a place for fallen women, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes abused women, uh, women, and someone reminded me today that sometimes the sister of a king for example, where they wanted to kind of keep her away so she wouldn't create problems in terms of succession, would mm-hmm. be sent to a nunnery. Wow. And I just wondered what the true story was. Hi, Fritz. I'm a fan. Hi. Oh, how are you? It's nice, so nice to meet you. <laughs> yes, likewise. Um, and anyway, I just wondered what the reason was uh, the original Maria von Trapp was sent to an abbey, and at what age, what, what age was she sent? Because Julie Andrews played the part, and she was in her early 30s, which is probably double the age, I suspect, of a, of a teenager uh, you know, who might be sent to an abbey. So the point is, was it because um, young Maria von Trapp was orphaned? Was she a fallen teenager, you know, and, and they were hoping to reform her? Um, uh, or did she truly have a spiritual calling? Well, it, uh, that's a very good question. And, uh, you're, you actually just answered it at the end of that because she really did have a true spiritual calling. She had an unbelievably difficult childhood, really Dickensian 
very, very sad in many ways. And I, I talk about that in the book. And she did develop a very deep faith and she did develop an incredible love of nature. You know, those fantastic opening shots in the movie, that, that was really who Maria von Trapp was. And she would go up in the hills. Uh, well, when she was a little bit younger, before she went to the nunnery, she would just listen to the music of the nuns singing outside of the walls. she would be, because she thought it was so beautiful. And so going there was her own choice. But what became evident was that she was far too boisterous a personality to ever live a cloistered life in a nunnery. I mean, Maria von Trapp was a mover and a shaker. And, you know, she's the one that made that family into the huge success they were. She was the driving force. So that quiet life in the nunnery was never, ever going to uh, suit her. And they really did when that became evident after, I don't know, her latest infraction, they really did say, we're going to send you to a household. It's a naval <laughs> and you're going to be a nanny. But the interesting thing was she was only sent to take care of one child. It wasn't all of the children. So again, uh, that's, you know, sort of a change that they needed for dramatic purposes. But no, she was a woman of great faith and held that faith until the end of her life and and yet was unbelievably practical. And I can illustrate that with an anecdote that people really sort of chuckle over, which is that um, at the end of the war, she organized a huge uh, clothing drive for Austrians because, of course, after the war, they were in desperate need and shipped tons of clothes and shoes. And when her husband died, and they were burying him, she took off the shoes he was wearing and she said, he doesn't need those, but they need them in Austria. <laughs> wow. So there you go, oh. very practical. Wow. practical. Yeah. As, as a casting matter too, why was it decided, and I know Julie Andrews was just coming on the scene with from Broadway with Boyfriend and so forth and, and Mary Poppins certainly, why was it decided? by Fox to cast someone um, of that age, because again, she was in her early thirties and I know Doris Day had been considered, she was even older. Natalie Wood was considered for the part among others. Why, why did they not go with someone, Angela Cartwright's age, which was probably closer, correct, to the real Maria Von Trapp's age, or could they just, they just wanted someone with star quality? It was a very, very much a Hollywood decision, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, you know, stardom makes its own rules. And when Robert Wise saw that footage over at Disney Studios of, it was only, you know, 10 minutes of Mary Poppins. He's, you know, those stars, they pop off the screen. And, and with when you combine that with that spectacular singing voice of Julie Andrews, it was a done deal. And the age was not, it didn't matter. It wasn't like, the age mattered in terms of, it's why they never seriously considered Mary Martin to recreate her role because she was 50 by then. But Julie, you know, could get away with it because she looked great. So I, I think it's all about that star persona. What were the ages of Christopher Plummer and, and Julie Andrews when they made the movie? Um. Well, you know, I would have to, to give you the accurate answer, I will have to flip through my book. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think uh, uh, there was only seven years difference between them, which is why they grade Christopher Plummer's hair, because they wanted to make him look older so you would believe the age discrepancy. And, uh, but I, or the seven children. Yes, it, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to have those by 30. If you have to work at it. I, I did just, I want to just circle back for a second when you asked about the kids and, and what they were doing. And I gave mm -hmm. sort of a general answer, but yeah. I always thought the most interesting one was, uh, uh, Charmian Carr who played Liesel, uh, who sadly died a couple years ago. Um, mm -hmm. her career, she did a, you a couple of things she did interestingly a Stephen Sondheim television musical um, but her biggest big career was she became an interior designer and decorator 
And she, if just think about this, was in charge of the whole interior decoration of Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch because oh. Michael Jackson said, I want Liesl to decorate it for me. Oh, my goodness. She didn't have a hand in, in the Trump interior, did she? I would certainly hope not. <laughs> I, I doubt it. So you That know, is she, fifth. Yeah. And she, you see, she was only seven years younger uh, than Julie Andrews when they made the film. That's interesting. Yeah, because she was not 16. She was, I think, 21 at the time. Going on 17. Yeah. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who else? What other? So uh, Nicholas Hammond becomes Spider-Man, doesn't he? Uh, I think he had something to do with that. You're right. but Something in my mind sings Spider-Man. I'm not sure what. Maybe a TV series or something. Um, yeah, I think that's it. It was something to do with TV. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And he... Um, he was, he freely admitted, even making the movie, he was just in love with Julie Andrews. And so it, it was very difficult shooting the lonely goat herd scene with the um, puppets. But he said he was ecstatic because he got to stand next to Julie Andrews for hours on end. And so just a couple of years ago, um, he's had a great career in Australia. He, he moved there and and... and there was an evening with Julie Andrews and Nicholas Hammond hosted it and screened the clips and interviewed Julie. So it was a nice way for them to come full circle. And Ricky had me in hysterics with the stories from your book about how the little one, how, how Gretel, you know, was having a growth spurt as they made the film and she becoming she became increasingly difficult to carry. Can you tell that story? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Kim Carrath played played Gretel, the youngest one, a really cute little girl. And, but she was eating a lot of the schnitzel and (laughs) the famous desserts over in Austria. And she became increasingly heavy to carry. And um, so I, I think they um, finally decided that they had to sort of minimize the carrying because it was sort of really weighing them down. And uh, uh, she, she grew up into this, really stunning looking young woman uh and uh but yeah gretel was uh she really really liked those viennese desserts (laughs) (laughs) and yes we can't blame her for that uh any further questions rick or fritz no you guys have really entertained me with your great questions knowing so much about the subject so i want to talk about the other books that you've written a book called let me get to the why to kill a mockingbird matters what harper lee's book and the iconic american family mean to us today talk a little bit about that so we can get people off and reading that and then uh, right before we close tom well i again uh i would say to you that it the reason why i wanted to write that book is because like the sound of music it is a book that people have returned to over and over again and you know it has sold uh Uh, tens of millions of copies, and it's around the world. So I thought that is a really interesting phenomenon. And it's one of the, and it won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's one of the very, very rare books that was made into an equally great movie. You know, there are no great movies of F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway. It never Mm -hmm. has happened. But with To Kill a Mockingbird, they got it right. And so I wanted to look at the intersection of this great, book and the film and why it speaks to us today. And of course, now in the era of Black Lives Matter, the book came out um, two years ago. So before Black Lives Matter, we look at To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, in a slightly different way now. So it's a, a work that is open to I think endless interpretations. And even at the time it came out, 1960, Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a turbulent time in the South. You had the Montgomery bus boycott, the Freedom Rides. There were still great pockets of segregationists. It, it wasn't universally accepted at first. It stirred up a lot of controversy when it first came out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good point. And it was, um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird has been 
attacked from both the far left and the far right. Mm -hmm. But the great, great middle portion of the country has really embraced it. So that, that you know, it's a book, um, and, and this speaks to why I called it Why to Kill a Mockingbird Matters. It, it's a book and a movie that are beloved by President Obama, Michelle Obama, and their daughters. And when Obama gave, it was either his last or second to last address as president, he quoted from To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, that's how much it mattered to him. And I thought, that is, that's so interesting to me that our president is quoting from it. So uh, I, I think, you know, it's like- A president that read, let's just chew on that for a couple of minutes. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, say that again? A president that read. Let's it, just chew on that for a couple of minutes. There, there you go. And, and read so widely, and and you know. you know what I loved about it, Tom, and I, I I I I loved it because it was sly. It was very similar to Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn, mm -hmm. where he put these profound discussions, like Mark Twain did it with slavery, and in To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout made these beautiful and very humorous comments about racism and classism in the South. And it had a lot more bite coming from the innocence of a child. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, wow. I, I If I could do a new edition of the book, I'd quote that in it. Because <laughs> that is really well said. Uh -oh. And I, 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 I think you're onto something. And the other thing about the book is we, we all tend to instantly think about it in, in terms of race. But of course, to me, what it makes the book universal also extends beyond that, which is what Harper Lee's doing is she is grappling with the concept of the other. Anybody who is different, anybody who walks differently, talks differently, has a different color skin. And everybody in the world has felt like the other at one point in their life. It's just, it's universal. And so you have these two figures in the book, Tom Robinson, the African-American falsely accused mm. of murder, and oh, Boo right. Ackley, who turns out not to be a monster, but a shy man who saves the lives of the children. Mm. And I think the fact that she's pointing that out about how we treat anybody who's different grounds the book in something pretty, pretty terrific, I think. Tom, also, if I, if I might um, insert here for, for a moment, Louise, um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting how two years ago, it seemed, when um, there was a lot of talk and a lot of hype about the show on Broadway where the, the um, African-American character, a lesser character in the book, a minor character in the book, was suddenly made into a larger character. So you really got the idea of the domestic as to the psyche of the domestic worker in Atticus Finch's family. And I'm curious as to whether, in terms of the timing, the chronology of when Obama quoted, was it quoted from the book, was it in the context of the new Broadway version where suddenly the, the African-American character has a bigger role and therefore is he, is he uh, kind of um, looking to the new version, the new Broadway version, which goes to a much broader audience newer audience that is not necessarily broader newer audience versus the original context of the book because it's a slightly different shift would you agree with that well it, it's very much different what aaron sorkin has done with the broadway adaptation but president obama was referencing uh no it was the original mockingbird because he talked about this as he was leaving office and that was uh really two years before the show was on Broadway. So I don't think Aaron Sorkin had even written his script at that point. Okay. Okay. It's just a coincidence that. Yeah. Her, but her, but that's, a really, that's a really interesting point because I wonder if our president Obama would speak about it differently in light of Aaron Sorkin's interpretation. of That's it. it. That's yeah. it. And there's, there's still a lot of Americans that haven't seen Aaron Sorkin's interpretation because a limited number of people actually get to go to a Broadway play. So maybe they, maybe some televised version of that might, might appear at some point as yeah. it recently did with Hamilton, which was such a delight. Right. Uh, we're going to have to close now. And I just loved having you here and having this conversation. Uh, Tom, it was where wonderful, can, Tom. Thank you so where much. can people find you online and where can people purchase your books? Uh, 
well, the books are available in, uh, you know, your neighborhood bookstore or Barnes and Noble and certainly uh, online uh, through an Amazon. And uh, I have a website. I always love hearing from uh, people. Uh, it's TomSantoPietro.com. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I hope people will investigate the books. And uh, I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Great questions from all of you. This was fun. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you'll come back because you've written so many books. There's a lot for us to talk about. I, I would love to come back. Excellent. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. And I want to thank our guest, Tom Santapietro, my cousin Rick Rosenfeld. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and Brian Benna, and of course, you. And I appreciate you listening and watching so very much. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.